Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Titus, chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 11 through 14. This is the last in our series of sermons on the fruit of the Spirit. Paul gives us that list, as you'll see in your bulletin in Galatians chapter 5. And this morning we come to self-control. Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 14. Please give your attention to God's word. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Back in 2015, Pixar Studios released Inside Out, which is a psychology course disguised as a children's movie. Pete Docter, the director, came up with the idea for the movie by watching how his middle school daughter, how her personality changed as she entered into the teenage years. So in his effort to try to understand his daughter, he actually enlisted a, a group of psychologists, psychiatrists and psychologists, to consult with him and come up with a movie that would illustrate this inner struggle that all people have to one degree or another, but especially those going through puberty, I think. This movie illustrates the inner life and the emotional struggles of an 11-year-old girl named Riley. Her emotions, her five primary emotions that the movie identifies are personified as cute cartoon characters named joy, sadness, anger, fear, and disgust. And so the movie then simultaneously tells the story of what's going on in Riley's life externally, but at the same time shows internally how her emotions are scrambling around frantically trying to guide her choices and actions. These emotions live in a control room inside of Riley, and they operate a, a, a console, a large control console that has lots of buttons that supposedly represent the control of Riley's responses, her actions, her choices in life. These emotions will respond to her experiences, and then her emotions colored by her experiences, colored by her emotions, form memories, and then in the, in the, in the worldview of the movie, these emotion-controlled experiences come together to form not only memories, but memories that are core memories, and these core memories make up her basic personality, her identity. Well, at the beginning of the movie, because she's coming out of childhood, joy is the dominant emotion among the five emotions. She kind of runs things in this control room inside of Riley. But as Riley is forced to endure a move from the Midwest out to the West Coast, you can imagine moving from the Midwest to the West Coast, causes all kinds of trauma for Riley. And as her life gets more disappointing and more, much more difficult, 
Joy gets lost and anger and fear and disgust end up controlling and dominating her emotions, her actions in life. Interesting point of the movie is that trying to figure out how sadness fits into the balance of her emotions is really what the movie is about as she responds to the difficulties of life. I have found Inside Out to be a challenging movie to watch for a children's movie to try to understand, but because it's because it's talking about internal realities in each one of us that we struggle to understand. How do our minds work with our wills and our emotions to respond to the world around us, especially the challenges that we face in the world around us? And I find it fascinating because God's word also speaks as though there's a control room with a control console in the midst of our lives, at the very center of our being, of our soul. The Bible calls it the heart. And if there is a console, a control console in the heart, one thing the Bible makes clear is that our emotions are not to be seated at that console directing how we live. They are not to be in control of our lives. Also, our desires and our appetites are not supposed to be at that console either, guiding and directing the decisions that we make in this life. Interestingly, I think if I were to ask you what should be at that console, controlling the decisions we make in life, a lot of us would jump to say, based on our understanding of Scripture, we'd say the Holy Spirit. Shouldn't the Holy Spirit be sitting there pushing the buttons and pulling the levers to, to control our lives and to direct us? That's not actually how the Bible talks. The Bible talks about self-control. Because we're not robots. And God didn't design us or call us to be robots. His intent wasn't to put the Holy Spirit in our lives so that the Holy Spirit could make all of our decisions for us and make all our choices in life and control all of our actions in life. We're not robots. God never intended us to be. That's why the Bible talks about self-control. The purpose is that our self would learn to control our lives according to the will of God. It's the same reason that we teach our children to work. It's, we know if we, when your children are young, you go out to do a, a chore in the yard or in the garage, work on the car, you know it's a lot easier just to do it yourself. But you go through the extra effort to teach your child how to do it so that they can learn and be able to do it on their own. In a sense, the Holy Spirit works with us the same way. He could do it all for us, but the point of salvation is that we would become, in the language of verse 14, zealous for good works ourselves. That's the goal. As born-again believers, we sit at the console of our lives, in the, in the control room of our heart, trying to manage the emotions and desires that can sometimes be so confounding as we try to make good decisions in life. So let's ask the question, first of all, what is self-control? If self-control is a fruit of the Holy Spirit, we've seen this with every other one of the fruits of the Spirit, joy, peace, patience. If it's a fruit of the Holy Spirit, the clear implication of that is if you are not born again, if you're not saved by grace and born again, if you're an unbeliever, then you do not have self-control. It's a spiritual fruit. It grows out of the work of the Spirit in you. And if you do not have the Holy Spirit, you do not have self-control. Well, what about all the very highly disciplined people that we know in life? 
I'm sure you can point to many unbelievers that you know that are probably more, than you, more disciplined than you are in some aspects of their lives. What do you mean they don't have self-control? Well, to understand that, you have to go to the New Testament. And Paul is always contrasting life according to the flesh and life according to the spirit. The flesh is that corrupt, prideful, self-centered nature that we're born with. What we are naturally, bent towards selfishness, self-centeredness. And that flesh does have a will. Having a will means you're made in the image of God. Whether you know God or not, you're made in the image of God, you have a will. And so it's, I think it's appropriate to talk about an unbeliever having willpower to make choices. And sometimes they use their willpower to be Discipline, to make sacrifices in life, to deny pleasures in this life for a goal. But that goal is always ultimately selfish for someone who lives according to the flesh. Someone who does not have the Holy Spirit, that goal at the root of it is always selfish and self-centered. The goal is to glorify the self. Many of you know that I have another job. I work seven Saturdays a year over at Beaver Stadium. I am security at, uh, on the field, on, on the, in the middle of the stadium, I'm at the main gate going onto the field. And so I am, on those Saturdays, I am interacting with the football players. And I'm always amazed, every, every time, without, without exception, when they come storming by me onto the field at how big they are, how built they are. I mean, they look like they've walked out of Greek mythology. I mean, these guys are just the, the epitome of maleness, of strength. They are ripped. They are powerful. And I realize, and I watch them do all these spectacular plays on the playing field that seem almost superhuman at times. And I'm amazed. And I realize in order to get to that point, they had to work really, really hard. They had to sacrifice a lot to get to that point. They had to exercise their willpower consistently, day in and day out, over a very long period of time to reach that goal. But sadly for most of them, that goal is self-glory. For most of them, that goal is self-centered. Thankfully, not all of them. And I'm always rejoiced when I see somebody who works that hard but does it for the glory of God. See, you can be very disciplined in life. You can make sacrifices in life and not know the Lord. But your goal is always self-glorification. Satan will gladly, you'll learn this if you ever read um, Screwtape Letters by C.S. Lewis. It's one of, the, one of the big lessons of that book is that Satan will gladly allow you to exchange a slavery to food to a slavery to, for, for a slavery to pride. He will gladly allow you to do that. That's true with any part of life. Whatever bad habit, whatever bad thing that you're addicted to, he will gladly allow you to defeat that in your life in order to get you addicted to pride. Jesus taught us that self-control is not willpower. Self-control is a gift from the Holy Spirit that enables you to use your will, your God-given will, to manage your thoughts, desires, and emotions so that you can live to the glory of God. 
Let me just state that again. Self-control is a gift from the Holy Spirit that enables you to use your will in order to manage your thoughts, desires, and emotions so that you can live to glorify God. That's what self-control is according to Scripture. You think about dieting. Many Christians diet. They try to overcome their overindulgence in food, try to be self-controlled in relation to food. The problem I have with most diets, even quote-unquote Christian diets I've seen, is that ultimately the appeal is to pride or to willpower. Try harder. Maybe be more strategic. Be smarter. Whatever. But it's all appealing to pride for you to accomplish it by your own efforts, which ends up too often being just legalism. There's not enough teaching about self-control, biblical self-control, so that we can sacrifice different types of food or amounts of food that we might want to eat. When Jesus called us to discipleship, he said, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Denying yourself, that is self-control. It's essential. It's, it, you cannot extricate it from the call to discipleship. You must be willing to deny yourself. It's that self that's being talked about there is the self that he came to die for. That sinful nature, that self-centered, self-glorifying nature that you're born with. You need to die to that self and live to Christ. But it's not about giving up pleasure. Self-control is not about giving up pleasure. It's not about giving up fun in life. Matter of fact, God designed us to enjoy his good creation. And I think sometimes in talking about self-control and pursuing righteousness, we miss that fact. He created things that are very pleasurable for our enjoyment. As, he, as Paul says to Timothy, everything that God has created is good and is to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. This week of thanksgiving, I'm going to be thanking God for the pleasurable things of his creation that I enjoy. I'm going to be thanking him for baseball. I'm going to be thanking him for apple pie, chocolate ice cream, Dunkin' Donuts coffee, all these things that I enjoy. I will thank God for him because he wired me so that I will enjoy them. And that gives him pleasure as I enjoy his good gifts. But when those good gifts become idols, I abuse them. And they become, I use the gifts that he has given to me for my glory and not his. Stan Gale, in his book, A Vine Ripened Life, he says that self-control is about protecting our freedom from slavery to sin. I like that description of self-control. Self-control is about protecting our freedom from slavery to sin. To quote him directly, he says, self-control isn't a slave driver, it's a freedom fighter. It fights for our freedom from slavery to sin. Because that's what we were. We were enslaved to sin. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, just going over a few verses into chapter 3, it says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures. We are not to live that way any longer. That's what we were. But Christ has died for us. He has saved us and given us his Holy Spirit 
so that we can be self-controlled. And that's what Paul describes in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12, where he says, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything, because I am no longer a slave to sin. I serve the Lord Jesus Christ, and so I will be self-controlled by the power that he gives me. In Proverbs chapter 25, verse 28, it says, A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. Picture of vulnerability, weakness before attack. That's the person without self-control. Remember how alarmed and deeply concerned Nehemiah was when he heard from his place in, in, uh, in Babylon, in exile, he heard that the walls of Jerusalem were still down because Jerusalem was vulnerable. It wasn't safe. It was unsecured, vulnerable to attack. So how do we build the walls of self-control in our lives? It's not enough for me to just say to you, just quote the word of God and say, be self-controlled. Try harder. <laughs> Obviously, that's the opposite of what Paul's trying to say. There's an old Bob Newhart skit. If you've never seen it, I recommend you look it up, Google it. Bob is a, a counselor in his office, and a young woman comes in, and he says, well, tell me your problem. And so she describes how she suffers from claustrophobia. She can't even think about tight spaces without breaking out in panic. And so Bob says, okay, I'm going to give you two words. Stop it. And she says, what do you mean? No, stop it. That's all you're going to say? Yeah, stop it. Do you have anything else that's wrong? She says, okay, well, I also struggle with bulimia. Well, stop it. Okay, uh, well, I also have a tendency to date bad men and get into bad relationships. Well, stop it. I know Pastor Owen shared that illustration several months ago. You, you'll hear it again because we pastors, any counselor loves that skit. You know how many times we'll sit there listening to people unload their problems and you just in your head you're thinking, just stop it. That's, your answer is so simple. Just stop doing that. Stop thinking that. Stop. But we know that that doesn't work. We know that would be useless to say that. And so it's not enough just to say be self-controlled. You have to be motivated to be self-controlled. You have to have hope in order to be self-controlled. Back at the beginning of chapter 2, Paul tells Titus, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus was a young pastor. And that's where he begins this whole instruction. He says, teach what accords with sound doctrine. But what's interesting is that then he proceeds to not say anything about sound doctrine immediately. He starts listing practical instructions, telling people how they should live. And he speaks to older men, and he says to older men in verse 2, be self-controlled. And then he speaks to older women in verse 4. And he says to the older women, teach the younger women to be self-controlled, which obviously means they've already learned how to be self-controlled so they can teach the younger women how to be self-controlled. And then in verse 6, he says, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Unless you need any more evidence, you go back to chapter 1, verse 8, he lists the qualification for elders there, and he says elders must be self-controlled. Obviously, again, denying yourself, taking up your cross to follow Christ, denying yourself, being self-controlled, 
is essential to discipleship. It's more important than we make it out to be. It's in verse 11 that he gets to the sound doctrine. Verse 11, the first verse we read, says four. When you see four at the beginning of a verse, you know that you're in the middle of a thought. You're in the middle of an argument. And so here in verse 11, Paul is giving the reason why you should be self-controlled. Here's the basis. Here's the source. Here's where you get your strength to go out there and face the temptations, to face the pressures, and to be self-controlled in life. Usually, Paul teaches, if you know Paul's writings in the New Testament, usually Paul teaches sound doctrine first, and then, based on the sound doctrine, gives practical instructions about how you should live in light of it. Here, he does it backwards. He gives the instructions about being self-controlled, and then he gives the reasons why you should be self-controlled, where you're going to find that strength. As he says in Romans chapter 12, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You see, Paul stresses the importance of your understanding, of your mind, of your learning, of understanding God's will, God's word, seeing who you are in God's sight, seeing God for who he truly is, and seeing God for what he has done. That is essential for you to become self-controlled. Listen to how Paul, I want to take you over as another example, over to Ephesians chapter 4. Again, the beginning of Ephesians is all about sound doctrine, deep doctrine, particularly doctrines of salvation. And then he begins the practical section in the middle of chapter 4 of Ephesians, and listen to what he says. He says in verse 17, just as you listen, think about how many references there are to your mind and to learning. He says, now I, this I say, this is verse 17 of chapter 4, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you learned Christ, assuming that you heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Did you notice how many times the references are to the mind? He says, first of all, looking at the self, the old self, the old man, he says about the self that their minds are darkened. The Gentiles' minds are darkened. Those who don't believe, their minds are darkened. They are alienated because of the ignorance that is in them so that their heart is hardened and they're given, they have given themselves up to sensuality. Their desires have take, come to rule over their lives because their minds were darkened and they did not understand the truth. But, he says, we who have the Holy Spirit, we have learned Christ. We have learned the truth that is in Jesus, he says. We have been taught in him to be renewed in the spirit of our minds. And so sound doctrine, and by that all we mean is a deep understanding of Scripture, is crucial to have self-control. You can't just skip to doing the right thing. 
It has to come first from your thinking being transformed. That's what the message of the New Testament is. And so here in verses 11 through 14, Paul gives the doctrine that will transform us. The first thing he mentions is the epiphany of grace, what I'll call the epiphany of grace. That's what Paul calls it, verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. And so he launches into the great doctrines of our salvation. And he says, the grace of God has appeared. The word appeared there in the original language is the word from which we get the word epiphany. An epiphany is a sudden and glorious appearance. The grace of God has suddenly and gloriously appeared, Paul says. Now, of course, God's grace has existed ever since this first sin in the Garden of Eden. Matter of fact, in a sense, his grace existed even before that because it says we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. So God's grace has existed, but it has gloriously appeared with the coming of Jesus Christ. That's what Paul refers to. The great announcement of the angel when, he, when the angel said, Behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. It's interesting that both Paul and the angels say that this salvation that suddenly and gloriously appeared, that that salvation is for all people. And I have to explain that because I'll have people say, well, does that mean that everyone gets saved? No, that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying that all types of people can be saved. There is no type of person in the world who is beyond this grace that has appeared. You know he's talking about types of people because that's what he just Mentioned in the first 10 verses, old men, young men, old women, young women, slaves, all categories of people, Gentiles, Jews, slave, free, all people can know this salvation because it's by grace, not by works. It's by grace, not by birth. It's by grace, not by race or tribe or tongue. It's for all people, all types of people, without distinction. And in the birth of Jesus Christ, this grace became personal. It always existed from the very pro first promise of God, but it became personal and visible when Christ came to earth. And then verse 14 talks about the purpose of his coming. How did this coming of the eternal Son of God into the world, how did it, he bring salvation? Well, verse 14 says, who gave himself for us. And there's the key, the most important phrase in scripture he gave himself for us the greatest act of self-control that this universe has ever witnessed is when the eternal son of god added to his divine nature a human nature and dwelt among us that was great self-control in itself but the greater act of self-control is when he allowed himself in his perfect human nature to be nailed to the cross and there to have the father turn his back upon him and pour out the wrath that our sins deserved upon him that is when he exercised the greatest example of self-control ever as he voluntarily allowed himself to be crucified for us and what's the meaning of his death Paul goes on to say in verse 14, it was to redeem us. To redeem means that he paid a ransom. We were slaves and Christ paid the, the cost that it took to, flee, to free us from slavery, which was his own blood shed on the cross. His death was the price that had to be paid so that we could be freed from sin and death. 
And then he goes on to say, to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. You see, we weren't saved just to rescue us from hell. We weren't saved just so that we could be cleaned up and forgiven. We were saved so that we would become zealous for good works. That's his purpose, is to conform us to his image, to teach us self-control so that we can become obedient, so that we can pursue righteousness, so that we can become like him, because that is true life. That is freedom, is to obey. And that's where the ongoing work of the Holy Spirit comes in, which is the training by grace. Grace appeared, the epiphany of grace when Christ appeared in the flesh and died for our sins, but then the training by grace that Paul talks about is in verse 12. He says, the grace of God has appeared training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. This present age, we live in the time between the first coming of Christ, the, first, the epiphany of grace, and his second coming. And in this present age, Having been saved by grace, Jesus now gives us another grace, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit, to be like our personal trainer. To sit us down at that control console, in that control room of the heart, and then to patiently, so patiently, teach us how to control our passions, our emotions, our desires, so that we can live submissive, obedient lives and find the freedom that is in Christ. This training that the Holy Spirit initiates at the point of our salvation, this training is hard on us. It's painful. Self-control is a gift, but receiving it requires incredible effort on our part. Paul compares it to the hard work that great athletes go through. He talked about those athletes on the football field. Paul uses that same analogy over in 1 Corinthians chapter 9, talking about the hard work of training in self-control. He says in verse 24, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable so I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. You see, the Holy Spirit not only gives us the word to teach us, but the wonderful thing about the Holy Spirit is he also gives us the desire to be taught. Until the Holy Spirit is in your life, you don't want to be taught how to be self-controlled to God's glory. You don't want to be taught to be obedient and righteous. But the Holy Spirit gives you the desire to be taught. And then, having given you the desire to be taught, he gives you the understanding of God's will and his word so that you could pursue self-control and righteousness. And then he gives you the strength to actually perform it. And then, having performed it, he gives you the gift of perseverance so that you will continue. Even when you fail, even when you fall, you'll pick up and try again because the Holy Spirit is faithful as a trainer to teach you in self-control. And that's why Paul says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. I know that's a cliche verse you hear all the time, but man, if you're struggling with temptation, if you're, if you're failing in self-control in some area of your life, whether it's in regard to food or spending or, 
or pornography or sex or drugs or alcohol, if you're failing in self-control, that verse is your hope. You can do it. You can be self-controlled. You can say no to sin. You can say yes to obedience. You don't have to be governed and directed by your passions and your desires because you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. But Paul, in that analogy to the athlete training to win the, win the race, he talks about the imperishable crown, and that gets to Paul's last point in verse 13, where he talks about not just an epiphany of grace in the past, but an epiphany of glory in the future. Verse 13, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing, and there's that word epiphany again, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. It's the same word as appearing of grace, now appearing of glory. We live in the present age between the appearing of grace and the presence of Jesus Christ and the, the epiphany or the appearing of glory when he returns to bring to completion the work of salvation. This is one of the clearest statements in Scripture, by the way, of the deity of Christ. Paul literally calls Jesus Christ our great God. He is God, the eternal God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. And he, has, he will come one day to bring his work of salvation to completion. We live with a focus on that day. That's why we can say no to immediate gratification. That's why we can say no to having the sinful pleasures of this world served to us on a platter. We can say no thanks because we have something so far greater coming in the future. We have an eternal perspective, and in that eternal perspective, we find the motivation to control ourselves. We live between two epiphanies. We look back to the cross and forward to the second coming. If you understand that key to life, that you look always back to the cross and forward to the second coming, if you have that down, you will find the strength to be self-controlled. Isn't it amazing? That's what the Lord's Supper is really about, isn't it? When we gather around the Lord's table, we remember the body broken, and we remember the blood that was poured out for us. We look back to the cross because that's where the epiphany of grace was. But he, Paul also says that we proclaim his death until he comes when we serve the Lord's Supper and observe it together. And we look forward to that day when Jesus Christ will come back, and he will set before us a table which we call the wedding feast of the Lamb, and we will sit around the table with him, and we will inaugurate a new heavens and a new earth, and his kingdom will have come in its fullness. And that's what we live for. And in that hope, we can say no to sin. We can say no to sinful desires and the pleasures of this world. This present age is not a time of rest. This present age that we live in between the two epiphanies is not a time to just sit back and enjoy ourselves. It is a time of training and a time of waiting, looking for our, the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. So I hope this morning as we've talked about self-control, you've had the opportunity to think about what sinful emotions and sinful desires are out of control in your life. Is it pride? Is it gluttony? Is it pornography? Is it some other sexual sin? 
drugs, alcohol, needing affirmation from other people all the time, jealousy. I want to say to you, be self-controlled. I want you to say to you, stop it, be self-controlled. But I want to point you to Christ. Because only in Christ will you find the strength to live according to his will. And remember that that battle line is in the heart. Christians lose sight of this sometimes. That the battle line is in the heart. Who's sitting behind the control council, council in your heart? Who's pushing the buttons? Who's pulling the levers? And who's empowering it? That that's where the battle is, because especially when I think I talk to young men that are struggling with the pornography, too often they're focused on their behaviors, trying to avoid doing this or that to, fall, to keep from falling back into that sin. But the battle is really in the heart. That's what Jesus is trying to say. When you look upon a woman with lust, you've already lost the battle. You need to win there at the control console in your heart. And you win by looking back to the cross and forward to the second coming. And finding yourself spiritually renewed and strengthened in Christ. And you can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. If you're not a disciple of Jesus Christ this morning, then I hope that through this statement from the Word of God, this passage from the Word of God, you have come to realize that the control console of your heart is guided by a self-centered ego. And that you are still enslaved to your sinful emotions and desires. And so I invite you to come to Christ, find forgiveness, receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, and accept his training and empowerment to live in the freedom of doing the will of God. Believers, I would say to you, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Submit to his training. Draw near to Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Depend upon him. Learn to depend upon the Holy Spirit. You do that by prayer. You do that by digging into God's word daily. You do that by receiving the sacraments. These are the simple means of grace that Christ has given to his church to give us the strength to be self-controlled and to obey his will. Draw near to Christ through the gospel, through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you understand that, then I can stand here and say simply, be self-controlled. And by God's grace, you'll be able to do it. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for the fruit of the Spirit. Thank you for these series of studies on what each one of these fruit of the Spirit really are. What we have seen in the fruit of the Spirit are the means by which we draw near, the means by which we reflect the glory of Christ in our own lives. And Lord, we give the Holy Spirit all the glory for this. It is his work as it bears fruit in our lives. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the Spirit. And we know it's only because Christ's body was broken and his blood was shed so that we might know you, that we might be forgiven, that we might have life and life eternal and life abundant. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.